name is Bill Rutan. I'm one of the elders here at Orchard Community Church. Back when Dave was on sabbatical, I was slated to give one of the sermons uh, while he was away, filling the preaching duties for the six weeks. When my time came, like four or five days before, I caught COVID, and I was like, oh, yay. <laughs> and then, oh no, all at the same time. So I've never given a sermon before, so your graciousness would be appreciated. In that time, when I was preparing for it, it's, this is a unique and difficult task. I have taught Sunday school classes many times. I've spoken through meetings, some very difficult here, some very good. I've given building and grounds updates and all sorts of fun stuff, budget talks. But nothing's been quite like this. And I was struggling with that for a while as to why this was so difficult for me. My wife was gracious enough to let me take um, many nights away, go to the library, lock myself in a room, and rewrite my sermon 15 times. So as I struggled with that, I really came down to kind of three reasons as to why this was difficult for me. First was, this is a unique way to present the Word of God, and it's a serious thing, and it's become kind of trite for some in my sinful way, I've thought this. People come up like, oh, this is real serious. I appreciate the opportunity. Like, yeah, you have to say that. But when you feel it, it's, it's unique and different. And I really struggled with that level of importance. Really tied with that level of importance was my own pride. Not a good reason to struggle with a sermon, but no one wants to come up and embarrass themselves and over 100, over 100 people, their family here, oh, good friends, that's one I had to get over. Still there, though. So working through that. Get over Thanks, Dave. <laughs> it is interesting because this is a very loving, supportive church, and it's not a good reason. Most importantly, though, one of the real reasons I struggled with this is Dave told me to pick a passage that means a lot to me. And when you do that, Scripture and God works in your heart in ways that aren't just intellectual, but it's spiritual, it's emotional, it's... Um, it's like life-changing. How do, you, how do you get in front of a group of people and say and adequately express the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? That's, that's the struggle. So when people come up and preach, I'd just say, especially guest preachers and people who don't do this every week, but inclusive of Dave, um, this, is, this is hard. Pray for people as they preach. Pray for people as they work through a passage. Extend grace and that's enough about me. <laughs> but moving into the passage, this is a passage that did mean a lot to me. It was a few years ago. I was teaching a class in, in, through the book of Daniel here at Orchard. And this was a verse that God put on my heart. I didn't know I needed it. And ever since then, it has stuck with me as kind of a grounding point in my life for when I feel like things are out of control, things are lost, things are... Um, not right, hopefully, and it is my prayer that as I speak today, as I bring this message to you through using God's word, that it would have a similar impact on yours. But if not, you get to know a little bit more about me if you wanted to know that. So today's passage, I'll read for you the heart of it, is verses 34 through 35, and then we'll back up and kind of walk through it. But in Daniel chapter 2, verse 34 through 35, it reads, While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. 
It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Uh, Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, look at your word today, as we um, hear it, as we wrestle with it, Lord, we pray that uh, Holy Spirit works in our hearts and our minds, uh, Lord, to challenge us where we need challenged, to correct us, Lord, and to draw us closer to you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So these words are not, these verses are not typical of what you would see on an inspirational poster. Uh, They're not, it's a little long and obscure to put on a pillow in your living room uh, or to tag on a Facebook post. But um, as as we look into the story of Daniel and we see the context in which these verses um, reside, they paint a unique and beautiful, challenging picture for us uh, as Christians. So to set the stage for when, where these verses occur, uh, Daniel in Daniel 1, the book of Daniel, beginning, sets the stage of where the book is. Not every book of the Bible does this. This is helpful to us, though, so I wanted to start there. Um, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Then he carried off to the off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it at the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Asphanaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. So it's funny to see God work um, in unique ways. If you pay attention, he's doing it all the time around us. But I picked this verse uh, back in August of last year when I saw my time coming up. And I missed my chance to preach it. And since then, Dave has walked us through Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Chris last week uh, spoke on the fall of the Israelites going into Babylon He's teaching a class through the book of Daniel right now. And it's just like, can't time these things, you know. It's just wonderful to see. So I had this whole long thing of setting the stage for you guys of how, you know, how do I bring them all up to speed? But you've been here, so good for you. You're there. But Chris did say one thing really good that I kind of wanted to touch base on last week about the fall of the Israelites going into exile. And that was the temple had no, has no, um, equal in our culture. We can't really grasp and make a comparable of the temple of Jerusalem and what that meant to the Israelites in our culture. Um, where he failed to do, Chris, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, is that, but that sense, that sense of devastation um, reminds me in this a movie I watched once. It was an action movie um, space, I think. I don't remember all the context. But it was that moment in the movie where all, almost all the heroes were wiped out, all their weapons destroyed, the enemy was overwhelming them. There was no hope you know, before the hero or heroine rises up and, 
wins the day. But in that moment of disparity, there's one of the characters, like this weak, you know, hapless guy that's always there, uh, just dragging everyone down. He keeps saying over and over again, it's over, man, it's over, man. He's just sitting on the ground in the dust and the rubble. It's like, it's over, man. Just complete and total hopelessness uh, was what he was displaying in a really annoying way. And I don't remember any much of the movie beyond that. Just like, that's a really annoying line. Um, it just kept going on. And I like, wanted to hope one of the other characters killed him or something. But um, <laughs> not really. Can't say that. Sorry. Bring it back. Uh, but it's just that complete lostness, that devastation. And two things in this passage really point to this sense of devastation and lostness and failure of the Israelites. Uh, one being the temple. The articles of the temple taken away. The temple was the unique place where God's people were to go and make atonement for their sins to maintain a relationship with God, and that had been removed from them. And then also the young men, the next generation of the Israelites, the best and the brightest in a uh, culture that has um, hierarchy that's not quite like ours, where the next generation were the children of the current generation. They'd come up, they'd be taught, they'd be trained. They were taken out. Um, and Daniel was one of those young men taken out of Israel to Babylon, kind of the next level of political, economic, social hope for the people. And at this point in time, for the Israelites, it seemed as if all things were over and there was no hope left. They had screwed up so bad. The temple was gone. Their cities were gone. Their economy was gone. Their military was gone. And their next generation of leaders were gone and brought into exile. And that's where Daniel is in this perceivable situation where you could just say, it's over, man, and just sit down in the dirt and die. And it's in this situation, uh, and Daniel 2, we'll look at verses 1 through 5, kind of sets the next scene here for us. That was the overall picture. In Daniel verses 1 through 5, it lays out a specific conflict that Daniel was dealing with. Um, 1 through 5 read, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. And the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut to pieces, your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. So clearly Nebuchadnezzar was having a bad dream. Over and over again, this dream troubled him so much, he called Everyone he knew, anyone in any political power, all the people who worked for him, as the Babylonians took over you know, all these nations and spread throughout the Middle East area we know today and uh, Eastern Eurasia, um, what they would do is they, Israel wasn't unique in that they had their best and brightest taken. This is what Babylon did. They would go in and they would take the best and brightest and bring them into service uh, to their nation to create a stronger, more robust society. Um, so he calls all these people in and says, tell me my dream and what it means. So clearly, he has had dreams before. People gave him answers. He didn't quite believe them. So he puts this test to them that they need to tell him what the dream is before they interpret it. And if they didn't, he was going to kill them, and not just kill them, but destroy their houses, everyone in them, and wipe their family off the map. 
So I hope you get the picture here. Nebuchadnezzar is an absolute tyrannical monster. We don't have many nations. um, I don't think in history you see these nations pop up here and there. Um, They don't last forever. Um, Lord, thankful to the Lord for that. But they have complete and total power in a way we don't really understand um, that they can just do this. They can take everyone and then just wipe them out and just move on as if it's nothing, as, uh, to their own whim. Um, to summarize the next section here, no one could do this. It's an impossible task. You can't tell someone their dream. Um, they ask for mercy. Then the king says, no, you're all going to be killed. Um, Daniel asks for a stay in the execution of an evening that was granted to them. Um, God worked in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar's workers to give them uh, essentially a night um, to try to work this out. And verse 19 is where we'll pick up next to jump over that part there. There's a lot of goodness there, but we're moving to here. Uh, Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision in the night. And I want to stop here because this is kind of the first little glimpse and one of the grounding points that really stuck out to me here. Um, so God reveals Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel. And when we read scripture, we hear about major miracles, the creation, beautiful, massive miracle, creation of the universe. We hear about Israelites pulled out of slavery, going through the Red Sea, fires coming down from heaven, burning up altars. Uh, you hear about people being raised from the dead. And we can go past some of these miracles that might seem minor in our minds and say, and not even notice them. But here is the first miracle of the story, in that God places within Nebuchadnezzar's mind a recurring dream. Think about that and the power of God in that aspect, that he has control over our dreams and our minds. And not only that, but then he takes that dream, and he takes it, and he puts it into the mind of someone else, and then gives him that interpretation. I mean, our God is a mighty God who is all-powerful in all things, big and small. (laughs) My mind works in weird ways. But uh, there's a Dr. Seuss book, like all the things you can think, uh, all the places you can go, all the things you can think. I thought about this as like all the dreams you can dream, God knows them all. You know, it's, it's kind of scary, but also wonderfully intimate at the same time that we have a God who is that intimately involved in our lives. And it's not just Daniel. It's not just Nebuchadnezzar. It's us too. That is the God we serve. Um, so our next passage will be one of the larger sections here as we go. But picking up again in uh, Daniel 2, verse 31, uh, we'll read through the balance of this dream, its interpretation, and then go back and look at uh, a couple application points. Uh, so Daniel comes before Nebuchadnezzar to give his interpretation here. Uh, Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance, The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. 
The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory in your hands. He has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky, wherever they live. He has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, one rule, and this will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it. Even as you saw iron mixed with clay, as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom would be partly strong and partly brittle. Just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock that was cut of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation trustworthy. The first thing we want to look at here that really stood out to me, and hopefully does to you too, as you go through scripture at times, it seems that God will graciously kind of pull back the curtain of what's going on around us, kind of reveal to us some of the the behind-the-scenes workings that's going on to help us and ground us in who he is and what he does. And in here we see the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream made of various materials, one preceding the next, gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay. And within this, there has been a lot of conjecture and thought of, well, if the gold's uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, then this is the Assyrians, this is the Persians, this is the Romans, uh, this is, oh, time, as time goes on, those interpretations change as to what empire is what. And really, these can be fun and interesting mental exercises, but I believe that really misses the point of what God's doing here. Uh, when God lays out this vision of the statue and the changing materials, the focus is not so much on the materials and what they represent, but the, inter- the focus as it starts off um, in 37 and 38, is how he begins this. He says, O you, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and might. And then later towards the end, it says, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. The focus here is not on what do these pieces of the statue represent, but that there's a progression from kingdom to kingdom to kingdom. Kingdom of man will be raised up by God and will be replaced by another kingdom. These kingdoms do not last. Remember, this is the context of Israelites being destroyed by the Babylonians. Their kingdom ended. The Babylonians has risen. It is this all-powerful, mighty empire that the world has never seen, at least any of them had ever even heard of, stronger than the Egyptians who were a previous major world power. And it seemed like... This was the end. This was the, this was the kingdom that was going to rule everything, but it doesn't. It ends. This kingdom ends, and it ends by the will of God. God sets up kingdoms, and he brings them down for his purposes, progressing towards the ultimate end at his time. And for me, what this really kind of crowned me in is, 
I don't need to worry about our nation ending because it will. I don't need to worry about any of these things that I love and hold and cherish of going away because they will. And that's a weird kind of solace that what we have will go away. But as we think about that, it alleviates this burden, this stress that I need to protect this. I need to have it. This is going to last me. This is what's going to get me through. This is what's this is where my hope is, because your hope is not there, because it's leaving. That is a temporary thing that will go away. And here, specifically, it's talking about kingdoms. And I think, very applicable to today, we can say, oh, no, if this happens, if this country ends, or this country ends, or that country rises, then it's all going to be over. It's going to be ruined. But it's not, because God says they are going to. But then, ultimately, even after all the human kingdoms are here, After all the strongest one, the iron that rules the whole earth, crushes them all, guess what? There's something else coming. And that is a kingdom not cut by human hands, but comes from outside of the statue, comes from outside the progression of human history, and it comes and it smashes the statue, not just to ruin it, but to completely obliterate it. So it blows away in the wind. Because if that's what God's doing, if that's what he's working for, if he's working towards it, then where is our hope? And that is verses 34 through 35. Again, I'll put them before you. While you were watching, a rock was cut not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Spoiler alert here, folks. The rock is Jesus. Um, But as we look at this, this rock, this rock is not cut by human hands. It comes outside of the pattern of world history, the pattern of rulers and kingdoms replacing each other. It comes from outside there. And then we see that depicted in the uh, first in the beginning of Matthew, when it talks about the birth of Christ. Um, In Matthew and Luke, uh, we both get the account that Mary was with child, but by the Holy Spirit. And here comes the beginning of a kingdom, not cut by human hands, but from outside of the progression of human history. And then in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, John the Baptist preaches, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Verses 11 through 14, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor. Similar language there, threshing floor. Gathering wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then as Jesus, after this moment, after he is baptized by John the Baptist, after he goes through temptation, goes out into Galilee, into Jordan, all to Jerusalem, to preach the gospel, the scriptures say to us. And what is the gospel that Jesus preaches? He says, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. This is the beginning of the kingdom that destroys all kingdoms, that will overtake the earth and will fulfill it and last forever. And then, after Jesus is death, and resurrection, the apostles uh, and early disciples take up this language. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 9-10, through 10, You were a chosen race, a royal, priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. This language goes throughout scripture that we are no longer of these earthly kingdoms. We are no longer, uh, we do live here. My, I am registered for selective service in the United States government. I am a citizen of America. That's not what we're saying. Like those, I am a citizen. You know, secular citizenships exist. I believe in them. They're real. But, um, but ultimately, as a Christian, as one called by Christ and redeemed by his blood, my hope and my citizenship is not in any of these earthly kingdoms. It's not in anything of this earth. But my hope is in the everlasting kingdom, the kingdom of God, which is revealed to us finally in Revelation 21, gives us this picture of a new heaven, a new earth, coming down to establish an everlasting kingdom here on earth, a kingdom with Christ as its Lord. So this challenged me in so many ways. Here you have a God intimately involved in the lives of his people through the giving and receiving of dreams and these you know, seemingly minor miracles that scripture gives us, but shows us an intimate God who's deeply involved with us. We see God orchestrating the events of human history, progressing one kingdom to another, and we see God's grand plan of establishing an everlasting kingdom, one that will never fall. And it really challenged me. When I feel anxious, and when I feel nervous, and when I feel like things are falling apart, I thank God for moments where I had an opportunity to teach and preach on these verses where It's, these things are not here to last. There is only one hope. There is only one lasting hope, and that is in the kingdom of God. That is through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So I say to you, are you struggling sometimes with these things? I'd say probably, talking to many of you, you're all struggling. (laughs) But... But seriously, as we struggle with these things and as we let fear and anger and anxiety work into our hearts, we need to stop and we need to ground ourselves in the word of God, reminding ourselves of where our everlasting hope is. And if you are sitting here and you don't know what I'm talking about, and you're like, what is this kingdom? What is this everlasting hope? Who is Jesus? Let me tell you, Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life, died in our place on the cross, rose again from the dead, proving that he is our Savior. And if you have faith in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that you are not able to live a perfect life on your own. And if you accept him and repent, and you might not understand all of it, I know I definitely still do not understand most of it, but if you seek to follow him and submit to him, you will be in this everlasting kingdom, and you will have an eternal hope. Let us pray. Lord, you are a God that we cannot possibly comprehend. You, what you do and how you live and act outside of the bounds of time and space. And Lord, your knowledge and omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, Lord, is just baffling. We just make up words to try to um, slightly understand you. But Lord, we also see that you are intimately involved in our lives. You're intimately involved in the course of history. And Lord, you... Offer us an opportunity to be part of your kingdom, one that will last forever. And Lord, we confess that we often are consumed by the things of this world. Our eyes are not focused on the correct things. And Lord, we pray that you would ground us in who you are. And Lord, for those who may not have accepted Christ as their Savior, who have not entered into the kingdom of heaven, Lord, may you work 
wonderful mystery, wonderful graciousness and love and act of compassion in their hearts, Lord, and have them confess today that you are Lord and Savior over their lives, and they seek to follow you. Pray these things in Jesus' name.